Let's go. Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey there folks, Oliver here, just me this week. I have a very fun interview with David Hyman, CEO of Unagi Scooters. You may know of them as the beautiful, super high-end, lightweight electric scooters. I think of them as the Mercedes of scooters that you buy as much for the performance as to show that you have taste and money. It is a great discussion about the difference in owned micromobility and especially around the emotional appeal versus simply utility. But before that, I want to thank this week's sponsor, Particle. Shared scooters, bikes, and other micromobility vehicles are connected to the internet. When that isn't configured correctly and operators lose contact with your fleet, it can get expensive very quickly. Um, if you don't know where your $700 scooter is, you are definitely in trouble. And as I've learned more about this industry, I've come to appreciate just how much complexity there is to make that work well. And that's where Particle comes in. It provides end-to-end IoT platforms from device management and connectivity to hardware for connecting all these scooters and bikes to, to make them work really well. For operators, tracking a fleet's health to addressing a on-demand regulations in each city is really complicated and then it gets even more complex as you have to go and scale that across different cities and geographies. Their IoT platform enables customization, fleet management tools, and reliable connectivity to support your growth as operators and differentiate yourself in the market. From the operators that I've talked to, Particle has been a godsend and helps streamline the hard bits of a business, helping them actually focus just on running their operations. Visit particle.io forward slash micromobility to learn more and request a free IoT development kit. All podcast listeners will also receive a free consultation. So check them out. Visit particle.io forward slash micromobility today. Thanks so much to Particle for being the sponsors of this episode. Here's David. And welcome back to Micromobility. Today we have with us David Hyman, CEO of Inagi Scooters. How are you going today, David? I'm doing really well. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Where are you today? I am in beautiful Oakland, California, about 15 minutes from downtown San Francisco. Oh, excellent. I have a the, James Gross, the co-founder of the Micromobility Conference, is also based in Oakland. And I get the sense that Oakland is really going to become the hub of micromobility in the Bay Area, isn't it? Yes, this is the micromobility capital of the world, Oliver. Well, I'm looking forward to having the conference up there again next year and being able to show off what you have because what you guys have designed, I mean, I'm going to be including a little photo for inside of the release here, but your scooter is stunning. It's a very nice counter to the very utilitarian scooters that I've seen in the world of micromobility. And I'd love for you to just take us through what the Unagi scooter is, like what the features are about it, why it's so interesting and different. For sure. And... At the heart of what we do is around ownership. And our internal tagline is that our scooters are too nice for sharing. (laughs) So when it comes to ownership, it's a lot more than just the specifications. It's the ergonomics, the aesthetic, the rideability, how it feels, and your emotional attachment to a product, to an inanimate object. And so like owning a car, there's a lot that goes into creating a strong sense of desire for ownership. We're obsessed with lightweight and portable, 
And that's very counter to some of the other scooters you'll see in the market, like the Ninebot Max and the Boosted Rev. They're they're kind of gunning for different success stories, but we're that's why those scooters are quite heavy. You know, too heavy for yeah. portability. I have a Boosted Rev. It's a beauty. It's an incredibly capable machine, but it is a tank. <laughs> yeah. And I'm a large guy. Like I can carry it around, but I feel for for a lot of other people, <laughs> it would be a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you get your workout, I guess. So I do. I do. There you go. Yeah. So, yeah, all, our scooter is 24 pounds. It's a very unique marriage of CNC machined aluminum with carbon fiber and magnesium. So these aren't materials that you'll find on your typical kind of more commodity driven scooters from Chamay or some of the lower price scooters. Everything on our scooter is a custom part. There are no off-the-shelf parts on our entire scooter. So this was built from the ground up design to kind of lead the charge when it comes to making the best lightweight portable scooter in the market. That was our goal. And so other things that the scooter includes, we have a patented one-click folding mechanism, which I think is by far the best folding mechanism on the market compared to any scooter. And we've tested everything out there. Our scooters have either a single front 250 watt motor or dual motor. We've actually increased the motor size of our Model 1 to 500 watts. So now it's 250 in the front, 250 in the back. And, and you have brakes? What sort of braking mechanisms do you have? It's regenerative braking. It's electronic braking on both wheels, which works incredibly well and is very responsive. A lot of the ones in the market that use a pedal brake like ours, do it with a binary. It's either full braking or full off, and we built variability into our pedal. We also have a rear step brake as a backup. We use batteries from LG. They have a much longer shelf life than anything else out there. It's hard to explain a lot of the beauty of our scooter just in a podcast, so I just strongly recommend everyone go to unagiscooters.com U-N-A-G-I scooters.com and see the scooter with your own eyes. You know, the whole base is machined from a single block of aluminum CNC machined. The paint yeah. jobs are incredible. We have puncture yeah. proof tires with embedded air gaps that act as a suspension. The real hero moment of our scooter is the beauty of the handlebar and the integrated controls into that handlebar. And it's something I can't even explain. Yeah, no, and look, I mean, I had a chance to ride it in January when I was up in the Bay Area, and I think that was probably a prototype, the one that I got to ride. It's very nice. It's a very slick design, and the thing that really struck me about it was that it is incredibly lightweight, and the thing that I've really come to appreciate is that having the Boosted Rev, I mean, that thing is a beast. It's incredibly useful because it allows me to go good distances and all that sort of stuff. But there are a bunch of times when I'm like, man, I just want something that's super small and lightweight to be able to do some of these shorter trips. And it's funny because I don't think many people are going to make decisions. They'll probably buy a one-time use scooter. They're not going to multiple different scooters for a thing. So they're probably going to go for the one that is the best in terms of being able to integrate it into the rest of their lives. And Riley Brennan has been talking about the bifurcation of the owned and shared market. So you can see with the shared market, it's going to get heavier the scooters are going to get um, bulkier and more vandal proof they'll be weighing you know 45 pounds or 20 kg plus and then at the same time as well there's going to be this movement towards light weighting because that's a variable that they'll actually want to make a purchase decision over and you guys really seem to have nailed it in that space 
Thank you very much. And when I listen to your partner in the show, Horace Didu, talk about the market, you're sharing data that says that it's very rare that consumers ride an electric scooter more than three miles a day. And so from our perspective, we're really catering to that quote unquote last mile solution. And when you make that your focus, you don't worry so much about having giant batteries to go 40 miles on a scooter Mm -hmm. and you make real trade-off decisions and you always put the emphasis on portability and lightweight because the reality is even with the 12 mile range on our scooter now, it's overkill for most people. Yeah, interesting. Of the scooters that you're selling, do you have much data on how people are actually using it? Because the other thing that I'm going to say about you guys is you're consistently putting out excellent content. You've done the business report with Haas, which I'd love to discuss in a second. You've just published a full analysis globally of where people can ride scooters and what the safety rigs are. Your content strategy around this is excellent. Do you collect a lot of data on users as well? <laughs> it's funny you say that. We don't know nearly enough about our own customers And part of that is because we, a lot of our online ad efforts rely on things like the Facebook lookalike audience algorithm, which which is really a black box. I mean, Facebook magically finds people that are interested in our scooter across Instagram and Facebook, but they don't tell us who those people are. And so we're starting to do more work on our end with post-purchase surveys to get a better understanding of who our customers are. But instinctually and anecdotally from the conversations we do have both through our customer service channels and people leaving online reviews we're getting a sense of who our customers are we certainly know the geographic regions they live in and other data like that we collect through shopify but you know we're very catered to a more sophisticated urban commuting warrior that is really using the device mostly for utility But we still think when the device is for utility, you want it to be beautiful, just like your iPhone and your Apple laptop. These are utility-driven devices, but you own them, and there's this incredible connection you have with a product when it speaks to you from the right design language. I had Jeff Rosikow, who's the CEO of Boosted, on the podcast a little while back, and he was saying 80% of purchases of the boards but also as well they're obviously just they were just rolling out scooters at that stage were purchased for commuting they were being used as their primary device for getting around and i can imagine you probably have pretty similar use patterns as well because if you're going to go drop a thousand bucks on a scooter you're probably going to be using it relatively frequently and you're going to work out how to integrate it into your commute absolutely and you know we now have zero down financing where you can take an Unagi for roughly $35 a month. And I wanted to ask you about this. Yeah, because we talked about this in January. This is one of these things, right? It's like you have people going and saying, well, I want to use the scooters that are available or sort of to rent via my phone, but that gets very expensive very quickly. And I can see in some ways, that's like a marketing effort for you guys. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, I mean like you know, when you think about the fact that- Go try your truck products. Yeah. Daily rideshare commuters are spending $58 a month on average on their ride sharing habit. It really starts to add up. And if you save about two and a half Uber rides a month with owning an Unagi, it pays the $35 a month. Yeah. So we're doing everything we can. You know, 
It's a bit more expensive than the average scooter, but it's going to last a lot longer and it's going to perform a lot better. And we love the monthly financing option and a lot of people choose it. Yeah, I was going to say, can you reveal of the folks who are going and purchasing the scooter, what's the split between people who go for a subscription-based model and people who just buy it straight out, right? Yeah, financing is probably about 15%. That's interesting. That's lower than I thought it would be. Oh. But yeah, (laughs) as you say, because there are people who will make micro decisions around purchasing the higher age of a scooter on a very short-term basis. But, you know, I guess in some ways it's a bit more of a commitment. For some reason financing probably has some psychological barriers and I guess we're dealing with a well-heeled audience that just wants to own it. You know, when I bought my electric bicycle about four years ago from a local bike shop, it was a $4,000 electric bike. They offered me 0% financing and I took it. It was particularly painful when that bicycle got stolen from me about six months later And I had to continue to make the payments even when I didn't have the bicycle anymore. Well, this is why people like to have scooters, because you can take them with you into the place that you're going. You don't have to go and lock it up on the street. That is absolutely true. People ask me about why I have a personally owned scooter. And my point is like, well, it's because of this. It's because I can rock up pretty much anywhere and don't need to think about it. Hey, well, look, I want to just go into the story. I mean, you mentioned that you had an e-bike four years ago. I'm really curious because the story of Nagi to me is actually really quite an interesting one. Can you talk me through how you ended up getting into it? Because your background is fascinating. Well, I'll try to make it short and sweet. I've been in software for over 25 years. I built a handful of kind of world-class software companies in the music space. I was the CEO of Beats Music, which Apple acquired, and today is Apple Music with 30 million subscribers. I had built in Gracenote, which is core technology that made iTunes and every MP3 encoder in the world work. It was the core technology that had to be in all those software products. But I became obsessed with electric scooters, partially because I was friends with the guys who started Bike. They were lead investors in my last software company, and I've been a snowboarder for 30 years. And so the moment those things hit the street, I happened to be in the Bay Area where they launched, and I started riding them on day one. And I very quickly came to the conclusion that I'd rather own one. I had this kind of epiphany moment where I was riding a line bike to a Whole Foods near my house and bought some groceries. And I came outside and my scooter was gone. Somebody had taken it and rode off. Um, As they want to do. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And unfortunately for me, I just bought a $7 pint of ice cream and it was 75 degrees outside. And at this panic moment, <laughs> I was trying to figure out how I was going to get home without the ice cream melting. Walking was, you know, not going to work. So I tried to find the closest scooter with the Lime Bike app, and it was about a quarter mile away. And as I approached this the scooter... This is before they introduced Reserve, right? Yes. The so Reserve this is button. very early. Correct. Correct. So as I'm walking yeah, towards those scooters, was, yeah. somebody jumped on them and rode away, and I walked home with melted ice cream and, and realized I just want to own one. I thought, I don't live in the urban center, and when I walk out my door, there isn't a scooter waiting for me. And now with scooter regulation, limiting the number of scooters per geo region, it's kind of increasing the value proposition of ownership because it's all about that immediacy and access. When I open my door and I hop on my scooter 
and I can go anywhere I want, including getting on public transportation with it, ownership makes a real difference. And then that was backed up with data. I did a four-month research initiative in partnership with the UC Berkeley Business School to kind of understand the market size for ownership relative to ride sharing. And yeah, our, interesting. Yeah, our conclusion from that effort was that ownership will be about 35% of the total market. Interesting, because Horace reckons it's going to be up at around 80%. He's like, 80% of the vehicles will end up being owned. Oh. But he's doing a kind of like thumb suck. He doesn't have any of the robustness of your uh, yeah. analysis. Well, um, right. I think we, his, his point is around the fact that you'll end up with a lot of the trips in the shared space, but they'll only be like 20% of the vehicles. 80% of the vehicles will be privately owned, but they'll only do 20% of the trips. You'll end up with those vehicles on the shared system just getting hammered, getting way more use. Because when you have a personally owned one, it's sort of like, you know, it doesn't have all the immediacy thing unless it's super convenient, as you have sort of alluded to. So for clarity, when I say 35% of the market, I mean out of gross revenue. So if ride sharing is the majority of the trips, that would skew the revenue towards ride sharing. Right. Yeah. Interesting. So 35% of the market being owned is around dollars in revenue. But our forecast says that the total global scooter market by 2025 will be around $35 billion. And so ownership should be somewhere in about the $12 billion range by 2025. And that in and of itself is a massive market and the market that we're solely committed to. Yeah, absolutely. What was the origin story? Because as you say, you realized you wanted to own one. But I mean, you probably looked around the market as I have more recently and sort of said, oh, there's not that much <laughs> that I'm yeah, super you know, excited I, about. I immediately thought to myself, Lion, Bike and Bird are blanketing the earth in scooters and they are doing the heavy lifting at educating the populace about the value proposition of these transformative devices. And I thought there is going to be a subset of people that will get turned on through ride sharing and ultimately decide they'd rather own. And when I pursued this at the time before I did the research with Haas, I had no real perception of how big ownership would be, but I just thought it would be meaningful. And I started pursuing a path of how I would enter the market around ownership. Next thing I knew, I was in China visiting over 20 electric scooter factories, ended up meeting my dream partners there after I had gotten discouraged from visiting so many factories and not seeing anything that I thought I would be proud to sell to the public or design from the ground up. You know, I wanted to get to market quickly. And so I ended up partnering with these three young industrial designers in Shenzhen who had designed, from my perspective, what was by far the best portable electric scooter in the world. And these guys were just getting started. They had a prototype but lacked the funding to bring that prototype to production. And they also lacked the ability to kind of build a global marketing and sales platform, both online and offline. And I felt like all of those were very much in my wheelhouse. And so after many months of negotiation, we formed an exclusive partnership. Now Unagi holds all of the intellectual property and the rights to the scooter design and global exclusivity to sell that design. And that's kind of how we got to market. 
I'm glad you clarified that because I remember when the initial Unagi announcement came out and there were a bunch of kind of quite righteous micromobility nerds who are in the sort of more immediate vicinity that I spent a bit of time with who were like, oh, no, no, this scooter was announced in China, you know, like 12 months ago. This has just been stolen from there or it's just been contract manufactured. And hearing that story and a little bit more about how that's the case actually kind of explains you can have pictures of a beautifully designed scooter, but if you don't know how to manufacture it, it doesn't really mean anything. So... Well, there you have it. Can't always uh, listen to the trolls on the internet. <laughs> they're listen often for life. <laughs> they're often incorrect. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And what's been the response? Because, I mean, obviously you went and did a Kickstarter campaign that was quite... Was it Indiegogo Kickstarter did quite well? Yeah, it was Kickstarter. You know, we did 250000 in revenue over a 60-day period. But since then, it's just really taken off. And we've been the victims of our own success. And we've sold so many scooters that we couldn't keep up with the demand. Unfortunately, right now, if you want a new Nagi scooter, it's about a 90-day wait. Wow. Yeah. And we feel confident in about 60 to 90 days, that won't happen again. We've moved our assembly plant into a much bigger facility that can handle a lot more scale. And this is the first month we're now manufacturing in the thousands per month, right? which we didn't have before. So we have some legacy customers that are bummed out. It's taken them so long to get their scooter. But hopefully by December, January, we will have fulfillment centers in Europe and the US stocked with scooters to get our delivery time down to three to five days. Yeah, I mean, this is one of these things. The Van Moof guys who do bikes are going to be having Taco, the CEO of that, on the podcast in the next couple of episodes. The big challenge they have is, man, when you deal with hardware, it's like shipping time. It's not like software that you just ship it out the next day. These supply chains really matter. I'm really curious from your perspective, going from concept to production, like what are the lessons that you've been learning along the way there that you think, oh, man, does that make it in some ways like a more defensible business from your perspective? You know, I would say moving from software to hardware is just trading different types of pain. (laughs) Right. Software is certainly not without its pain and you basically spend your whole life bug fixing. And this comes with its own unique set of challenges. Am I happy that we're sold out of scooters and we're not making enough? I mean, it sucks, but it sure beats the other way around, which is having tons of scooters in a warehouse and nobody wanting to buy them. Totally. Totally. I hear you on that one. Yeah. So trying to match production with demand is a black art and we're getting better at it. And, you know, it's hard to predict coming out the gate how many we could and would sell and what the retailer uptake would be. We've got over 30 retailers on board and you'll be happy to know we just closed a deal with our Australian distributor. Oh, well, David, be careful. I'm a Kiwi. I don't know if... Uh, no, no, no. They cover New Zealand also. They oh, do they? No, no. I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling cover, your leg. I'm pulling your covering, leg. covering both regions. So we can now yeah, get cool. you one, Oliver. You can have one. Uh, excellent. <laughs> we, we have nice. real problems getting them through customs in Australia for some reason and New Zealand. Yeah, uh, like the Aussies uh, adoption of scooters has been just perplexing. They have one of the most auto dependent, as we do in New Zealand, one of the most auto dependent transport systems. And yet they are completely against anything in the shared scooter space. They have one, you know, two cities in, in all of Australia that allow shared scooters. And it's anyway, and it's challenging to buy 
personally owned scooters to be able to use in Australia. Cool. But there's one thing in there that because of talking about supply chain and you're building a business in this space, because one thing that I noticed that you guys have done, and I think you've nailed it probably better than anybody else in this space so far has been branding. Because the thing that I can see, and the reason I was asking you around, does that make it a more defensible moat, is that as we move towards more modularized production for a lot of these components, people are going to be able to assemble these scooters more easily over time. And the challenge that I can see is that this ends up being just a commodity hardware business, right? And I think that you guys have done a really good job of really differentiating the ownership experience. So I'm curious from your perspective, how did you think about that? And how did you think about branding? How does that influence the way that you've structured your business and the way that you've gone out to market? So I come into the electric scooter space with 25 years in youth marketing and music marketing. I was a senior vice president running marketing for MTV.com, VH1.com, Nickelodeon back in the early 2000s. And since then built world-class music subscription services, which was all about youth marketing and then ran music for Beats by Dre. And obviously that's uh, an awesome place to learn about marketing. So I'm applying a lot of the lessons that I learned in the software space to the electric scooter space. I think that owning an electric scooter is something that you should have an incredible sense of pride tied to. And the recognition that these devices free you from the constraints to absorb your local culture and connect with your community in a much more meaningful way. And so we're constantly trying to tell brand stories around how the scooter lets you connect to local culture in ways that you couldn't ever do before the existence of these devices. And so Mm -hmm. if you go to our website, you're constantly getting new stories that continue on this theme. We think that's critical. And if you look at any modern e-commerce company, whether it's Casper mattresses or Warby Parker or away suitcases. Away suitcases, exactly. Yeah, totally. You know, yeah. there's an artful blend of content and commerce. If you want people to subscribe to your social media feeds, you better not just inundate them with advertisements. You better offer something up that's content driven and engaging and makes people value following you in their precious feed. Yeah, a more cynical take on this because I remember when the first scooter came out and you guys were, you know, you were definitely priced pretty highly. I mean, I think it was what your initial announcement for the dual motor would have been in the sort of plus thousand dollar range, I think, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And I remember thinking, man, they've nailed it. The job to be done of this thing is to just show that you're rich. Everybody else has got the pleb scooter. Don't worry. I got myself an Unagi. Shows I got some money. Why do people buy Porsches? Some of them are buying it for performance, but a lot of people are just buying it because it's it's signaling that I've got a bunch of money. There wasn't anybody nailing that part of the market, David. I don't know if you want to be in that category. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, I look at it this way. You can buy a Camaro that performs as well as a Porsche, right? Yes. But who really wants a Camaro? And... (laughs) And, Not me. <laughs> you know, the craftsmanship that goes into a Porsche is much higher. And so if you were to look at all of the pieces that go into an Unagi and the quality of each part, we actually have a picture on our website, an exploded image of all the parts laid out. It's a whole yeah. other level. And so 
I've always been a person that is obsessed with quality. I have knives from Japan, my audio equipment. I just like owning great things. And so every day, the people who work at Unagi, we get to wake up and know that we're building something awesome and that people will take great pride in it. And yeah, you can get a scooter that has the same specifications for less money, but it's going to feel a whole lot different. I've been thinking a lot about what that ownership experience is going to be like and what are the technological developments that are going to be coming. There's a whole thing in there around ownership where there's tech that's coming in terms of, you know, like obviously having the thing be able to be fully GPS tracked and connected and all that sort of thing. What's the stuff that you're thinking about for the next like two years um, that you think is interesting in that own micromobility space to really nail that user experience for ownership? Oliver, we raised $3 million and we are spending most of that in product development. I cannot talk about our plans, unfortunately. (laughs) We have a lot of thoughts about what ownership entails and what flagship scooters should include in the future. But yes, security is one of those things. It's this magic combination of variables of weight, power and range and durability. And as technology improves, we have the ability to continue to move down and improve all those variables simultaneously. How can we get something lighter with more power? That's at the heart of what we do. Even our scooter at 24 pounds, I know your boosted rev is 46, (laughs) but the lightest portable folding bicycles are 30 pounds. And our scooter right now is 24, but even at 24, we don't think that's light enough. A lot of people find even 24 pounds to be something they don't want to walk up their two-story walk up of their apartment with. And so we're going to continue to innovate in this space and I'll just leave it at that. No, I uh, hear you on that. I mean, some featherweight carbon fiber device of some regard. I could see that coming for sure. I am really curious about where you see the whole micromobility space as a whole uh, going over the next three years. Obviously, you guys made a bet in the own space and I can understand why. There is a clear market there for people who want to own their own scooters. But if you look in a kind of a wider space, how are you seeing the development of the shared versus owned and where we'll get to in terms of like that being forms of urban transport? How quickly do you think this is going to take root? Yeah, I don't think there's one single winner. I think people want a multitude of modalities and you're going to see different business models because it's such a large market and transportation is so massive and 50% of all car rides are under three miles and that whole market is ripe for disruption. We're talking about a market that's just massive. And so I think we're going to see these different modalities. I think subscription is a new model that's starting to appear. And I think that's kind of interesting. I think there's going to be models around enterprise, which haven't really developed yet. Would I like a scooter to come with my Airbnb? I would love a scooter to come with my Airbnb. And so we had Tortoise last week announce their self-driving scooters along with what Ninebot is working on there. Will that come to fruition in three years? We'll see. You know, we'll see whether cities are going to be evolved enough in their thinking to allow 
these devices to kind of move around on their own if they can actually do them in a safe and logical manner. But if they could, that's certainly a big boon for the rideshare space. Yeah, I had Dimitri on by the time this episode will come out. Dimitri's episode will have already come out. But yeah, I've really dug into that. I'm bullish on the space, probably more bullish than I'd say most people. But even then, I'm still a little bit skeptical on how long that's going to take. Yeah, I mean, look, there's a real need there. I mean, I go to Santa Monica and Venice Beach every month. We have an office down there. That's the epicenter of scooter life. But from an aesthetic perspective and kind of quality of life perspective, you can't take two steps without falling over a a scooter that's laying on the ground. And yeah, this is a beautiful place that brings in billions a year in tourism. And it's really been degraded by these devices that have kind of messed up the aesthetic. And so I'd love to see a solution there. From Unagi's perspective, we have mixed feelings about ride sharing. You know, in some sense, we compete with them. But then again, if they didn't exist, we probably wouldn't sell as many scooters. Jeff Ruskow from Boosters said the same thing. He was like, you know, as much as I dislike that there's been a billion dollars dropped into this industry, they're just free advertising for me. <laughs> I was, yeah, well, that's one way to look at it, for sure. And I agree. Well, scooters came along, it became a thing. All of a sudden, there's a lot of people nowadays, especially in New Zealand, who are seriously considering and use them for their commute. So they go and scooter down to the bus, they hop on the bus, they go, and then they hop it on, on the other end. And they would never have done that unless they'd originally ridden a lime. Um, yeah. It's an amazing thing to have happened in only 18 months. And I do some advisory work for government and they're like, look, we've had 50 years of really the only options being kind of crappy public transport, but then you have to tie it to transit development and you have to make it work well. You have to do a lot of other things in the zoning. And oftentimes we didn't have the jurisdictional control to be able to make that happen. Or there's cars and there hasn't really been a third thing. Cycling has been this thing that we, oh, it would be nice to get it, but we can't make people cycle, so whatever. Um, And all of a sudden, these new vehicles are emerging, and it's just changed the conversation in an incredibly short period of time. It's almost happened by freak accident that it started with ride sharing first, you know, because the value proposition of owning a car in a city is low. It's cost prohibitive. It takes up a lot of space. But Keeping a portable electric scooter in a small 400 square foot apartment is actually really easy. So it's just fascinating to me that it took off through ride sharing first. And, you know, I think the reason why this device hit so big is anyone who's in their 20s or 30s, when they see an electric scooter on the street, they intuitively know that they know how to ride them because they rode Razor push scooters as a kid. And so you're staring at this form factor that's incredibly comfortable and convenient to you without ever even stepping foot on one. And I think that certainly had a lot to do with the success. The final part I wanted to dig into is just your, as you mentioned, you've raised $3 million. VCs traditionally haven't been particularly bullish on hardware because they've been burnt and because it's hard. The returns haven't been there. What got the investors over the line with your business as you've gone to them and said, This is what we're doing. Well, the interesting story for us is we never actually went to any investors. Menlo Ventures came to us mostly because Sean Carolyn, one of the partners there who led the investment in us, he just bought an Unagi scooter and fell in love with it. And he was kind of a scooter obsessed human being that had a multitude of different scooters in his house. And he got an Unagi and said, this is the device that everyone in the family fights over every morning. And so 
I do think it's rare for hardware, but you see it when it's a category that's probably taking off, right? Like GoPro was a hardware company that was funded. And not surprisingly, Sean, my lead investor, also invested in Roku, which is another hardware company that's had massive success. So yeah. he's hardware friendly. I think it's about picking the right hardware products in the right market with the right product. That's certainly a conversation I've been having with a lot of venture capitalists. Is they can see the opportunity in the own space. And they're like, but all of these plays, you know, almost everything's hardware. And for various reasons, kind of averse to it. As I mentioned earlier, I think you've nailed it from the branding perspective. And I think you've got a quite an interesting way to build a moat around it as a business, which I think is unique in the industry. Well, that's our time. I really just want to thank you. It's been a fascinating discussion and you're certainly right in the middle of it. For folks who want to find out more, obviously, unagiscooters.com, but if they want to follow you more personally, David, how do they do that? If they want to follow me personally, you become my friend on Facebook or Instagram. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much, David. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Oliver. Thanks, Oliver.